Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This week, the nation remembered 9-11, a day that has become synonymous with the beginning of America's war on terror. But the date 9-11 is also a time Chileans remember, the beginning of a decades-long dictatorship under Augusto Pinochet. Today, we learn about September 11, 1973, when the elected government of President Salvador Allende was overthrown by the Chilean military. Later, we'll hear the stories of some Chilean-Americans living in Connecticut who escaped torture by the hands of the Pinochet regime. Now, how did Pinochet rise to power and what role did the U.S. play? We're going to get some context from a historian. Joining us from the east end of Long Island is Peter Wynn, professor of Latin American history at Tufts University in Boston. And he's the author of several books, including Americas and Weavers of the Revolution. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. And we'll also uh, let our listeners know they can join the conversation, too. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. I understand, Peter, you actually lived in Chile uh, during the Allende years, so like late 60s, early 70s. Tell us more about him, and how did he become um, elected president of Chile? Well, Salvador Allende was a lifelong democratic socialist and a founder of Chile's Socialist Party back in the 1930s. He was elected after um, three unsuccessful tries in 1970 on a platform of a democratic path to a democratic socialism. As was common in Chile's multi-party system, Allende won a plurality, but not a majority of the votes. This meant that technically the Congress would decide between the two leading candidates, Allende and former President Jorge Alessandri. In the past, the Congress had always chosen the leading popular vote-getter, But in 1970, both Chile's elites and the United States set out to prevent Allende's inauguration. Nixon and Kissinger, his national security advisor, saw Allende's election within a Cold War context and opposed an Allende presidency as as what they thought to be a communist and Soviet victory and as a threat to the U.S. position in Europe. To stop Allende from becoming president, Nixon, Kissinger, and the CIA developed a two-track plan. Track one was a congressional coup in which the centrist Christian Democrats would vote with the right in the Congress. Track two was a military coup that eventually involved a neo-Nazi group that was so far right that it had tried to mount a coup against the former Christian Democratic government. Part of their plan was to kidnap the army commander, General Rene Schneider. When he resisted being kidnapped, the plotters shot and killed him. This so shocked Chileans who were still unused to political violence in 1970 and proud of their democracy that Allende's election in the Congress was assured. Mm -hmm. Washington's two-track plan had backfired. Can you um, walk us through, so Allende had a unique approach to socialism, I understand. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, it was to be a democratic approach to socialism uh, with political pluralism, Um, with uh, democracy even within the socialist economy in terms of worker co-management and in terms of uh, complete freedom of the press and expression. You mentioned that the the U.S. plan backfired and he was able uh, to come to power. So can you walk us through what was going on on the ground in terms of how the population viewed Allende? Well, the population was split on Allende. 
they were not as polarized as they would become, but they were open as well to, to what he had promised, which was a, a socialism, a revolution with what he called red wine and meat pies, vino tinto y empanadas, which translates into a revolution without sacrifice. And during that first year, Allende was the most successful president in Chilean history. He advanced toward his, his own goal of structural change, including state control of the commanding heights of the economy, a giant step towards socialism. The U.S.-owned copper mines, which accounted for two-thirds of Chile's export income, were nationalized by constitutional amendment. Almost all the banks were nationalized using Wall Street-style takeovers and buyouts. Many of the largest factories were taken over. The agrarian reform was accelerated, however, because of a revolution from below in which peasants occupied the farms they worked and demanded the application of the land reform. There was an unprecedented 30% average increase in real wages during that first year of Allende's presidency, and a huge 10% national shift in income from business to labor. Uh, Peter, I understand you were uh, writing about peasants at the time. What were the people telling you about President Allende? Well, as one of them put it, put it to me, uh, this was on a day in which the great landed estates of an entire province were expropriated and peasants dragged me into a nearby bar to celebrate their good fortune and they said that Frey, Allende's predecessor, had promised the land but Allende had actually delivered it so now they were going to support Allende. So we're hearing about the people who were supportive of President Allende but what about the factions against uh, the conservatives uh, in the military? Even I understand the church didn't really support him. No, none of these groups did, and Allende had both rivals and, and enemies in Chilean politics. What was the critical group is the middle class and the political center in Chile, particularly if you're talking about uh, a democratic path. And what was interesting to me in this respect was that the middle class initially moved from being supportive of the Christian Democrats to support Allende, so that in the national municipal elections held in uh, April of 1971, more or less five months after Allende's uh, inauguration, you had, for the first time, his leftist coalition won a majority of the vote. And this was within a context of economic success at the time. Uh, because the, the new power of workers and peasants helping them to negotiate contracts meant that these higher incomes enabled workers, peasants, and the middle class as well, to buy a widening range of consumer goods. And people talked about fiestas of consumption. And the, so in the short run, these policies seemed very successful, fulfilling his campaign promises. And they made a, a democratic road to socialism in which Chileans would vote for socialism seem a real possibility. Uh, but a 30% average rise in real incomes is so huge it probably would be the source of a greater increase in demand for consumer goods than any economy could supply, even in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So the long-term result of this initial success was that the demand for goods exceeded their supply. And this led to increasing inflation and to consumer shortages. And those in inflation and consumer shortages led to social tensions over who would pay the costs. And the social tensions were compounded by growing middle-class fears of a surging revolution from below of workers, peasants, and shantytown dwellers threatening their privileged status.
This is Where We Live. My guest today is Tufts historian Peter Wynn as we talk about what happened in Chile 45 years ago this week. On September 11th, 1973, Chilean President Salvador Allende was violently overthrown in a coup that led to decades of brutal right-wing dictatorship under General Augusto Pinochet. Uh, Peter Wynn, you were on the ground when that coup happened. Tell us more about the days leading up to that, that day where uh, Allende uh, lost power. Well, I think the, what we're dealing with is a situation of growing economic dislocations, of growing social conflicts and tensions, uh, all leading to increasing political polarization. Uh, in which the center moved right into an increasing alliance with the rightist national party, and in which, on the other hand, his own supporters uh, became uh, even more solidly behind his government, or alternatively, behind even more radical uh, groups on the left. And this all was, was leading up to the midterm elections in March of 1973, in which the goal of Allende's opponents was to win two-thirds of the Congress, and be able to impeach him. But these midterm elections ended in a civilian stalemate. Allende's coalition gained seats, but they were short of a majority. They couldn't legislate socialism. His opponents uh, won a majority, but fell far short of the two-thirds of the Congress needed to impeach him. And there was no democratic way left to oust Allende before his term in office was scheduled to end in 1976. And it was in this context that the Christian Democrats, the centrist swing group of Chilean politics, elected a pro-coup leadership and began to bang on barracks doors asking the military to intervene, which the right had been doing for some time. So when civilian leaders who would normally be expected to defend democracy were calling for the military to intervene, while the U.S. was assuring Pinochet and other military officers that if they carried out a coup, the U.S. would support them and the resulting military dictatorship, you have a recipe for a military coup, which took place on Chile's 9-11, mm. 1973. So the U.S. motivation for doing this, they were worried they would have another Cuba on, it, on their hands? I think that was the articulated concern. Um, but I think Kissinger was even more concerned of having a, a successful democratic socialism on their hands, because that would undermine uh, the U.S. ideological stance that you can't have socialism and democracy which was what the U.S. was was telling the Europeans at the time. Uh, we heard uh, that uh, many of the agrarian workers, the peasants, were supportive of Allende. As this pro-coup leader uh, came uh, into power and there was more talk about a coup, uh, what was the feeling on the streets of Chile? Very, very divided and increasingly polarized so that uh, you had people moving from public political debates to uh, to public violence in the streets and, uh, and pitch battles. Uh, and that was a matter, I think, of growing concern, on, certainly on, on the side of the Allende and his supporters, but it was also a concern, I think, of the middle-class centrists uh, and gathered in the Christian democracy as well. So you were in the capital city of Santiago on the morning of September 11th, 1973. Where were you, and what did you see before President Allende's final radio broadcast? By happenstance, I went early that morning to get on the very long lines in order to get a, a photo ID. Uh, and when it came time to open the office and I thought I was going to be the first one they were going to see, uh, the woman who was in charge of the office came out and, and said that it would not be possible to, for anyone to be served that day. And when I asked why, she said 
This is so Chilean. Uh, it seems there's a little problem in the presidential palace. What was happening at that point was there was a, a gathering of, of the different armed forces. They were trying to convince the one branch of the security forces, the national police, uh, which is a militarized branch and is in every single uh, hamlet in Chile and is probably the second most powerful force after the Chilean army uh, to join the coup. So I went out from that office and I, I went to the, the office of the foreign press. I had foreign press credentials at that point, which also had a, a perfect view of the presidential palace and asked the person who was in charge of that office what was going on. He said, well, he said, it seems that there is a mutiny of the armed forces. I said, all of them? And he said, no, no, just the Navy, the Army, and the Air Force, uh, which, again, <laughs> is not as, as, as crazy as it sounds because of the Carbineros, this national police force. Uh, and I went to the window, and the Carbineros were not only still there uh, guarding the presidential palace, but buses of the, this national police force were arriving with and disgorging battle-ready soldiers or police soldiers with uh, heavy machine guns who took up a position defending the presidential palace. And then his telephone rang, and he picked it up and put it down and said to me, and now the national police force too. And I went back to the window, and the, the carbineros who had been taking up defensive positions were now with machine guns were now picking up their machine guns and getting back on their buses. And it was clear at that point, at that moment, that there was no real hope for a successful resistance to this coup. I understand uh, Salvador Allende uh, later gave a radio broadcast to the country as the presidential palace was being attacked. Um, I, let's hear a little clip of that uh, final radio address. Viva Chile! Viva el pueblo! Viva los trabajadores! Estas fueron mis últimas palabras. Tengo la certeza de que mi sacrificio no se les pago. Tengo la certeza de que por lo menos será una lección moral que castigará la felonía, la cobardía y la traición. So he's saying there, long live Chile, long live the people, long live the workers. There will, these will be my last words. And then as he's talking, we hear all of this sound like an explosion. What was happening right then and there, Peter Wynn? The, this is when the attack began on the presidential palace. Uh, when that happened, I was across the square from the, from the presidential palace. And uh, when the army arrived and the tanks took up a position on, on all the street corners, uh, they initially had their gun turrets pointed away from the presidential palace. It looked as if they were, they'd come to defend it, as it as had happened two months before when there was a, an army uh, coup attempt that failed because the, uh, the, the commander of the army arrived with loyal troops. But then what happened was really symbolic. Gradually, the turrets of these tanks tur rotated and focused on the presidential palace, and it was clear they'd come to attack it, not to defend it. And all around me, the people there, most of whom were uh, in favor of the government, were government workers who'd been, been allowed to leave early, uh, there was an audible gasp as they realized what was happening. And at, then shortly thereafter is when the tanks started firing and the uh, bullets were, were flying from all sides. There, there was some resistance on the part of the socialist youth. Um, 
with, but with small arms. And again, there was no way that this was going to be a successful resistance militarily. So what you're hearing on that uh, tape is while Allende is giving his last speech, which was his m most moving speech, and has become one that has become enshrined in not only in Chile but elsewhere in the region, uh, as he was doing that, the, what you're hearing are the shells from the tanks exploding. Did the military, was, was their intent ever to arrest President Allende, or was it uh, expected that uh, he was going to leave there dead? Allende himself had said, I was elected, and the only way they're going to take me out of here is feet first. But the military seemed to be, there was a, then a silence after that, after that, that last uh, uh, speech in which the military are presumably negotiating an exit for Allende. We know now from secret military broadcasts that have been declassified that Pinochet said, sure, promise him a plane and make sure it doesn't reach his destination. Uh, so that was not a real option. But, but in any case, Allende would not have taken it because if he had done that, he would have been legitimizing the, uh, the military dictatorship that followed. And he was aware that the one thing that he could do was to, to deny them that legitimacy. And so he died by suicide? This is still being debated whether he died by suicide or was killed, but I think it's the wrong question. Because I had a long oral history interview with Allende the year before he died, and there was nothing suicidal about Allende. Um, if, he, if, if he committed suicide, it's because he was put in that position by the coup. Uh, and, and I think that that's, that's really the relevant information. Mm -hmm. How shocked were Chileans uh, in the immediate aftermath, and what was happening by the, the security forces with rounding up people into the stadium? What you had is anyone who had any kind of political militancy uh, was liable to be detained and transferred to not just the, the national stadium, but many other kind of holding places. In addition, leaders of the government and of the political parties that supported the government were being named in radio broadcasts and told that they had to report to the nearest police or military station or military barracks. Uh, and they as well were being taken prisoner and were being, in many cases, treated very roughly. And this would continue uh, for several weeks after the coup. But as time went on, the repression became more and more organized, and the DINA was created, the Directory of National Intelligence, which one U.S. military attaché defined as the, Ch the Chilean Gestapo. And with that, you began to have a systematization of the repression and a network of uh, secret, clandestine, quote-unquote, safe houses where people were, were taken, uh, who were considered to be uh, enemies of the regime, of the dictatorship, and there they were interrogated, tortured, and many of them, more than 3,000 of them, were disappeared. What levels of violence did you personally observe, and how long did you stay, Peter? I observed the violence uh, both directly on the, on the day of the coup. I remember as, as I beat a retreat and encountering the, this puddle of blood uh, but also, in the days that followed, um, I lived in the center, very close to the, the river, the Rio Mapocho, which divided the, the capital city of Santiago. And every morning there would be bodies, uh, usually of young men, often with their hands tied behind their back, uh, sometimes headless bodies, 
bumping up against the shore, the results of the previous night's uh, repression. Mm. And I remained in Chile for, uh, for four or five months after. Uh, I had journalist credentials and was sending back information as well to, to Senator Kennedy's office um, in terms of human rights violations. And I was completing research on a book which uh, you were kind enough to mention at the start. Were you ever worried about your safety, Peter? Uh, yes, of course I was worried about my safety. From that very first day when I, there were bullets all around me uh, to the day when I finally got on the plane. And, in, and I was at one point detained and went through uh, interrogation. I was not tortured, unlike other people, so I don't like to talk about it uh, particularly. Mm. Uh, and, and the result of that was uh, I was told that I had uh, 24 hours to leave the country and uh, that uh, to be sure I had a good journey, the colonel in charge would be there to see me off, and that's the way it was. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Peter Wynn is joining us. Uh, he's at the east end of Long Island, a professor of Latin American history at Tufts University in Boston, author of several books, including Americas and Weavers of the Revolution. Today we're talking about the Chileans 9-11, that's September 11th, 1973, when a coup overthrew then-President Allende and Augusto Pinochet eventually came to power. We're going to hear more about that after the break, and we're going to actually hear from some Chilean-Americans, including the story of Conrado Ulloa, about the abuse he faced as a political prisoner after the coup. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today is Peter Wynn, Latin American historian and professor at Tufts University, as we learn more about how Chileans view the date September 11, 1973, when their democratically elected leader, Salvador Allende, was overthrown in a coup. Now, Stafford Springs, Connecticut resident Conrado Ulloa grew up in a southern Chilean town. He remembers celebrating on the streets when he was 19 years old after Allende was first elected. As a student leader and activist, Ulloa was drawn to Allende's progressive campaign promises like free education and universal health care, and he supported the coalition government. But everything changed for Conrado on September 11, 1973, where we live producer Carmen Baskoff spoke with Ulloa about his story, and this is where he's going to describe what he saw in the morning of the coup. So I got home very late at night, about 2 o'clock in the morning, and then 7 o'clock in the morning, we already were woken up um, by uh, radio announcements that the Chilean Navy, as well as the Army, has risen up again the constitutionally elected president. Uh, early in the morning, the city was uh, totally uh, surrounded by soldiers and mechanized weaponry, and there was uh, immediately declared a um, state of siege, and we could not move freely in the, in the streets uh, during that day. The, the, the troops began to mobilize at about 5 o'clock in the morning on September 11. It was a Tuesday, by the way. Uh, I knew that I was one of the targets. Uh, if, uh, if a coup d'etat would have happened, we expected that could have happened because the political climate in the country at the time. Living in a small city, the intelligentsia of the armed forces did have a very good information about all the leaders of the city. So it began to round up those people uh, in their own homes and the places of work immediately on uh, the day of September 11. So um, terror came down 
immediately upon us. We became hunted immediately by the national police as well as the armed forces. They were searching and taking people from all over and taking them to military installation. They were not even taken to a judge or to a prison immediately. They were taken to military installations where torture began immediately. The same day of the coup d'etat, when we found out that President Allende has been murdered, defending the presidential palace as well as the constitutional democracy in Chile, I knew that my days were very much counted, and I tried to cross the border and seek asylum in Argentina, but I couldn't. Chile is divided by a natural border with Argentina, with the Andes Mountains, and there were several ranges of uh, mountains that we were not prepared to cross. And so it was impossible for me to cross the border and seek asylum, so I remained in the city where I was arrested um, a month after the coup d'etat. Can you tell me about when you were arrested, what happened and where they took you? I was arrested in the house of uh, a cousin. Um, I was hiding. I was arrested on, on October 13, 1973, at about 9 o'clock at night. I was immediately taken to a police precinct where I stayed for a couple of days, and then they took me to a secret um, detention center, which was the equivalent of the FBI in the United States. It was, uh, it was a clandestine prison in which uh, people were thrown in, and we were kept there for days, weeks, months. Uh, personally, I stayed in very much solitary confinement in that place for three and a half months. I was there with my, my own teachers, uh, the uh, principal of my school, there were attorneys, there were uh, union leaders, there were students, there were doctors, uh, people from all walks of life who were arrested only because they were either supporters of President Allende or were members of a political party of parties of the coalition in which President Allende was running the country. Uh, there was no active or open uh, resistance to the um, military coup uh, because there were no means at all. It was an unarmed people who were massacred by their own army, using all the resources of the state to round up hundreds and hundreds of people. That was Stafford Springs, Connecticut resident Conrado Ulloa speaking with Where We Live producer Carmen Baskoff. Uh, my guest today is Tufts historian Peter Wynn. Uh, Peter, what's your reaction as you hear Conrado's story? And talk about the students that supported Allende and uh, what happened to many of them after uh, Pinochet came to power. I think Conrado's experience is fairly typical of supporters of the Allende government and its policies, whether they were students, whether workers, peasants, or shantytown dwellers. And, and uh, I, I think also that the repression was, was worse, perhaps, in small towns where, as, as he suggested, uh, people were easily identified, and, and even worse than that in rural areas, where anyone who'd been involved in the agrarian reform was likely to be detained and disappeared. So uh, there have been two truth commissions in Chile uh, s since the end of the dictatorship. One investigated what had happened to the more than 3,000 disappeared. And, but the, the other, I think, is relevant to what Conrado was saying. It was a truth commission on political prison and torture. And it came to the conclusion 
that, with, that more than 38,000 uh, Chileans had been put in political prison or had been processed through this repressive system, and that everyone who was a prisoner was tortured. And in the case of women, that torture was sexualized and included rape of women, no matter how old or young they were, no matter what their physical condition was. And so I, I think that what you hear from Conrado is a story that, with obvious differences, uh, would be true for uh, many, many Chileans at that time, thousands of Chileans, perhaps as many as 100,000 in my own estimation. This is where we live. Today we're talking about Chile's 9-11 in 1973, the date of a violent coup that led to the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet. Historian Peter Wynn is my guest today. Uh, Peter, could you tell us a bit more about the term disappeared? Who were the people who were disappeared? What happened to them? Sure. It is a very strange term. It turned into a, a verb to disappear someone. And what we're talking about is uh, kidnapping people, and then without going through any kind of due process or legal process, which is why it's not an arrest, it's a detention, um, putting them into this circuit of more than a, a thousand clandestine places of interrogation and torture, many of them which appeared to be uh, ordinary houses or have other kinds of business uh, as fronts for what was really going on behind these walls. And those who were disappeared never entered into the formal prison system. Uh, Conrado did in the end, and that is when it was clear that he was going to survive. So what we're talking about then is thousands of Chileans who are being processed in illegally, secretly, without any legal or due process at all involved, uh, who, are being, who are victims of torture, and who are being at the same time evaluated uh, by their repressors as to whether they should live or whether they should die. And if they would die, they would not be publicly executed. They would be secretly disappeared. You talked about the torture. Uh, again, Stafford Springs, Connecticut resident Conrado Uyoa detailed his experience to our producer, Carmen Baskoff, when he was detained as a political prisoner. Uh, here's Uyoa ex describing the treatment that he underwent in secret prison. I'm not only a witness of um, the physical and psychological abuse of the Pinochet dictatorship, but I'm also a victim. I was a political prisoner who was tortured. Um, they applied um, electricity to a sensitive part of my body. I was kept in solitary confinement, and I was beaten up um, severely. I was tied to, with chains to metal frames, metal mattresses. Um, people will jump on top of me. I have some broken bones as a, as a um, the consequence of the turtle that I was uh, submitted to. This happened during uh, three and a half months when uh, I was in that uh, solitary, semi-solitary uh, confinement, secret prison. Um, other prisoners there were also absolutely mistreated, given the same treatment that I did endure, including the fact that a congressman who was a friend of mine by the name Luis Espinosa was um, taken from the cell that was next to me, 
the night of December the 1st, and he was uh, assassinated. He was executed. How long were you in the secret prison for? Three and a half months. And then I was moved to a regular prison where I spent another uh, two and a half years. Uh, in the process, I was submitted to a military tribunal, uh, no civilian judges. Um, I had no defense. In fact, my family was able to get an attorney who saw me for the half an hour the day before the trial. And in the trial, I was sentenced to about six years in jail. Uh, I, was, I had charges of treason, had charges of uh, terrorism. They're all made-up charges. And if any of those charges would have been uh, true, certainly I would have gotten a much um, longer prison term, and I will certainly would have not been awarded uh, political asylum in the United States. Conrada uh, was eventually able to uh, come to the U.S. Uh, through the help of Amnesty International. I wanted to ask you, uh, Peter Wynn, about uh, those that were able to leave and uh, how difficult that process was for them. Well, I, I think that Conrado's experience is fairly typical in that respect. And again, the, uh, as long as he was in that clandestine system, anything could happen to him, as happened to his, to his friend. Uh, he could disappear forever, be executed secretly. Uh, but once he was put into the, the formal system, as bogus as those charges may have been, and as, as the process might have been, it, it, it was essentially good news for him because it meant that he was going to survive. Uh, and once that decision was taken, it was also possible for him to, to leave the country, particularly if he had some kind of offer of, of asylum or of being a student somewhere else. I, I personally spent uh, much of the first year after I returned after the coup to the United States, going around the country, getting places for students, for professors, etc., which would get them out of that clandestine and then legal system of repression that Conrado described to us. But I, I think there are, there are different stories for different kinds of people in different countries. The largest com community of Chileans outside of Latin America is, interestingly enough, in Sweden. Mm. And that was because Sweden was open, a social democratic government and country with long ties to the Chilean labor movement, um, was willing to accept not only leaders or students, but, but also people who were just workers, peasants, or uh, Mapuche, the indigenous peoples of Chile, who were being threatened because of who they were or what they had done, which was totally legal at the time, in support of the Allende government and its policies. Uh, and so in the 1980s, you begin to get a more complex uh, community of Chileans abroad, some of them who were there for political reasons, but also some who were also mixed, a mix of political and economic reasons. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, we're talking with Peter Wynn, professor of Latin American history at Tufts University. Uh, joining us uh, in a couple of minutes will be another Connecticut resident, a Chilean-American, who actually remembers uh, the time growing up under the Pinochet regime. And we'll be speaking with him in just a few minutes. Uh, we also want to talk a little bit about this referendum uh, that came to be where uh, President uh, Pinochet was actually deposed. And uh, we'll be hearing more about that after the break. This is where we live. We'll be back right after this.
pienso en el futuro, voy a decir que no. Vamos a decir que no. Con la fuerza de mi voz. Vamos a decir que no. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're learning about the consequences of Augusto Pinochet's time and power in Chile after a coup in 1973, which was supported by the U.S. government. Joining us from the east end of Long Island is Peter Wynn. He's professor of Latin American history at Tufts University. And joining me now in studio is Werner Oyanadel. He's a Chilean-American living in Connecticut. Werner, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy, for having me here today. Uh, so tell us uh, what you remember uh, as a child uh, growing up under the Pinochet regime. Sure. Well, I was two years old when the coup d'etat took place in Chile, so obviously I don't have any direct recollection from that period of time. But because I was raised in Chile during the uh, Pinochet regime, I remember that from time to time um, in the uh, mid-'80s, there were a number of protests that were happening around the city of Santiago, and I would imagine around the country, where people were protesting the, the regime. In one of those occasions, Lucy, I remember my, my parents' property was very close to a highway, um, Vicuña Maquena. And at the time, I believe I might have been 15 or 14 years old. So at night, if we would watch television, which was very regulated, and one of the programs that they had at the time was, and I remember this so so clearly, is an American show that was being broadcast, and it was the A-Team. Mm. Um, and the reason why I bring that up, Lucy, is because in that show, it was, I don't know if you remember that show, but in that I show, <laughs> they had always uh, played with tanks and explosions. And so I remember having that program in the television in one of these protests that were organized, and the light went off. And we looked out the window, and right across from us, there was a tank. Now, the, the street was actually be, began to be blockaded with uh, tires that protesters would actually burn to prevent people from passing from one place to the other. And so I remember my mother took us all by the hand and, and threw us in the bathtub for some reason. I don't know why she did that. I would imagine that she felt that it was the safest place in the house. You know, I was petrified by the fact that uh, we were going through something so close to what we were watching on television. Um, you know, everything got really quiet, and I remember so clearly that, you know, we heard a number of steps, you know, people running away from something, and, you know, we would hear boots, boots of, I guess, soldiers that were going after the protesters. Uh, but the, th the point that I remember the most is that the sounds that I heard after the boots of the, 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 the military, which were probably the carabineros that Peter was mentioning, uh, that we had at the time, uh, and we still do, but the mothers would actually be coming after the uh, chases of uh, what was happening uh, outside of the house. So it was the, the protesters, which were uh, primarily young people, the carabineros in military force e equipment, and then the mothers going after the, uh, the the protesters as well. So that's what I remember at the time. Werner mentioned uh, the role of the mothers, Peter Wynn. Talk about um, the community that was then pushing for change and condemning the Pinochet regime. Well, I, I think what uh, Werner is talking about is the, the 1980s, 
in which you have uh, a combination of political protest and social protest with protest against the economic disaster that the, the, the dictatorship had led Chile into. Protesters fighting the police and fighting the military as well behind barricades of, of burning tires uh, became standard in the, during this period. The, people thought that they might in fact be able to overthrow Pinochet and uh, on several occasions they seemed to have come close. But in the end he survived and he survived also an assassination attempt. And by the end of the 1980s, um, it looked like the, uh, there was only one way to, to possibly oust Pinochet and restore democracy. And that was accepting Pinochet's own authoritarian constitution in 1980, which provided that in 1988 there would be a plebiscite in which people could vote on whether they wanted eight more years of Pinochet as, as heading the government or not. And this plebiscite it would be only Pinochet, and there would not be another candidate. The only thing the Chileans could do was vote C si or no, yes or no. And that was ultimately what the resistance to Pinochet, uh, although they were concerned that it would be fraudulent, they were concerned that there would still be censorship, that people would not be, would be, feel too afraid to vote, that they would, uh, their votes would not really be truly secret, uh, accepted that challenge. And with the help, interestingly enough, of the United States, which moved increasingly into a position in the beginning of the second Reagan administration, that Pinochet was uh, a danger to democracy there ultimately, because it might lead, as in Sandinista Nicaragua, to a leftist victory. Uh, and therefore the U.S. moved to try to have a controlled um, transition from Pinochet's dictatorship to a restored democracy via this unique plebiscite that took place in 1988. Can you talk a little bit, uh, Peter Wynn, before uh, we uh, run out of time about uh, just uh, getting uh, the people of Chile to feel confident that um, that there'd be no retribution for whatever way they would vote uh, come that referendum? It was the hardest part, really. I was an international observer uh, for the plebiscite and uh, part even of the, of the task of, of of the church and other social civil society groups was to persuade people that they could take the risk of voting. Um, I had people t talk to me that the polling booths were open at the top and therefore there'd be helicopters which could see how they were voting uh, because there had been no voting of any kind for any kind of office in Chile for, for more than 15 years. And a lot of people did not believe that Pinochet would allow an honest vote to take place and which might risk the fact that he might lose that, that plebiscite. Uh, and so that was a major part of what the, the coalition or consultation for the no had to do. And that snatch of music of the campaign song that you played sort of before the segment uh, talks about how the joy is almost there. You know, vote no, vote no. And that is, was really the message that repeated in this way and uh, persuaded a majority of Chileans to take the risk of voting the way they felt. And Peter, what was the breakdown um, at that plebiscite? The breakdown of the plebiscite was something like 55% uh, no, and uh, if I remember correctly, it was like 42% yes. So Pinochet still had significant support, but 
it was also a decisive victory, decisive enough so that Pinochet uh, decided not to run for president the following year, but to nominate uh, one of his uh, minions uh, instead, because he knew that himself or anyone he would put up was going to lose. And in fact, the Concertacion for the No, which won the plebiscite, would then go on and win every single election in Chile for the next 20 years. Uh, it was the most successful political coalition in Chilean history. And it was responsible for the restoration of a democracy which was limited in, by Pinochet's authoritarian constitution. And that what is being debated in Chile today is whether there should be a new constitution um, as opposed to the attempts to, that have been made to reform the constitution they inherited from the dictator. Uh, Peter, we talked earlier about the role of the U.S. under uh, Nixon to help bolster the coup. Uh, we know that the coup uh, cannot be solely blamed on the U.S., but as we look at this uh, moment in time 45 years ago, can we talk about the legacy of the Pinochet regime, and what can we learn about this moment in time? Well, looking at, at the U.S. role in particular, I think the U.S. was clearly complicit in the coup, uh, although it has not been demonstrated that it played a more active role than that. And that, that complicity also included uh, assuring the military that the U.S. would support uh, whatever military government came out of the coup. And the U.S., in fact, did that. I mean, under Nixon, U.S. Dipl diplomacy denied that there were human rights violations taking place uh, in Chile and uh, provided Chile, which had received almost no U.S. aid during under the Allende period, became the largest recipient of, of, of U.S. aid under the dictatorship. And for several years after that, up until the Carter administration, which was very, very critical of the dictatorship and its human rights violations, uh, there was a sense, I think, that the U.S. was backing the Chilean dictatorship without a significant concern for what was happening in terms of human rights in the country. Considering what happened under the regime uh, when Pinochet finally passed away, he still lived a pretty good life where there was no uh, real accountability for what he did. Well, yes and no. P Pinochet continued to be head of the armed forces up until 1998 uh, when he, he finally retired and under his constitution became a senator for life. But in 1998, he also went to London for some arms deals and to have tea with Margaret Thatcher. And he complained of back pain, and uh, she recommended her surgeons, who decided to operate, and operate in a way which would require a, a recuperation period on his part of three weeks. Uh, and at that point, uh, Baltazar Garzon, a Spanish investigating magistrate who was investigating the disappearance of Spanish citizens in Argentina and finding that everything led back to Pinochet. And when he heard that Pinochet was going to be out of commission and in, the, in recovery in London for three weeks, that was enough time for him to get a warrant for Pinochet's arrest through Interpol. Uh, and what, what followed the, the arrest of Pinochet in London was a political and uh, legal struggle over whether he would be extradited for trial in Spain. Ultimately, there was a, what I think was a really a tacit political deal made, which Pinochet was returned to Chile, uh, but on condition that he ended his public life. And uh, he spent actually the rest of his, of his days defending himself against uh, hundreds of suits 
by victims of his regime's repression, and in addition, and importantly, uh, defending himself against charges of corruption, uh, which came out of the Riggs Bank in Washington scandal, which revealed that Pinochet, uh, who'd always talked about himself as being uh, you know, honest and uh, incorruptible, was actually very corrupt and had secret millions of dollars stashed away in U.S. bank accounts. Uh, and so increasingly, he became someone who even his, many of his former supporters deserted. And by the time he died in uh, 2006, um, his popularity and his support had really plummeted down to maybe 10% of the population. And, but I think the, uh, the final comment on Pinochet came after his death. In 2010, the Chile's bicentennial, there was a kind of a vote on who were the, the, the greatest Chileans who'd ever lived. And Salvador Allende came in first. Pinochet didn't make the top 20. And in fact, today in Chile, where people are concerned about history and memory, um, the memorial statue of Salvador Allende is just outside the presidential palace. And his tomb in the cemetery is a place of political pilgrimage that's always with, there with fresh flowers. There is no memorial anywhere in Chile to celebrate Pinochet or to remember him. Then there is no tomb either because of fears that that tomb would be desecrated and his remains would be disappeared. So it is true that Pinochet overthrew Allende in 1973 and was responsible for his death. But it's also true that it's Allende who's won the battle for historical memory. I want to thank Peter Wynn, professor of Latin American studies at Tufts University. Peter, thank you for your time. We appreciate it. My pleasure. I also want to thank Chilean-American Werner Ollanadel. He joined us for just a little bit to talk about growing up in Chile under the regime. He lives in Connecticut. Werner, thank you. Thank you, Lucy. Now, West Hartford resident Adriana Falcone Trafford is also a native of Chile, and she shared her experience with us about being detained when Pinochet came to power. You can read her story at our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Today's show produced by Kerman Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Special thanks to Katie Talarski and Lydia Brown. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.